Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Football Show. Welcome to The Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Later in the show, Mark Chapman is going to join us from The Athletic UK. We had a really fun conversation about engaging with the NFL in Britain and his history as a Bears fan, which I asked him why he would possibly do that. A lot of fun stuff coming with that. Before we do any of that, though, I am thrilled to welcome, as I always do on Thursdays, Lindsay Jones from The Athletic. Lindsay, how are you? I am great. I'm like still riding the high from Monday Night Football. It was, was so a- fun. It was, it was a so really fun. fun night. I had such a good time. And this is the greatest job in the world. I would never, ever complain about it. I feel lucky to do it every single day. But by week 14, you know most stuff. You know what the teams are. You know who's going to make the playoffs for the most part. Things are crystallized. And I was just ready for the postseason to start. It's like, let's fast forward three weeks. I'm ready to go. And then that game just gave me a jolt of energy that was fantastic. We had That game had everything. It was like a Stefan sketch. It had poop jokes. It had a great comeback. It had a ton of points. It had everything you could possibly want from an NFL primetime experience. Oh, I let my daughter stay up till almost 10 o'clock because she could not stop watching it and I could not stop watching it. And I got to teach her a lot of really interesting lessons about football, but also stuff that like I couldn't explain. She was like, what is happening? And I was like, I don't know what's happening. It was so ridiculous and amazing. Did you engage with the Lamar pooping thing with your we, small child? We, well, we did. But so the problem is, so I watched on my phone. So I can't actually be checking Twitter at the same time. Gotcha. Okay. So I was like going back and forth. And I was like, I think his tummy hurts. I think he's going to the bathroom. <laughs> but look, here the he comes. Is, <laughs> she is the only person for whom it would have been acceptable to be entertained by this idea. But instead, it was all 30 and 40-year-old media people and sports writers on the internet having way more fun with it than they possibly should have. But can we just before we move on to week 15, which there's some really interesting stuff in week 15, we can agree that he pooped, right? Like, we can we can just say that that happened. I think he would be the type of guy who would make a winking comment about it if he had, but he was adamant that he didn't. Either way, an incredible heroic performance from a post-poop Lamar Jackson, even if he didn't. <laughs> so I was very impressed. <laughs> so it was a huge game for the Ravens just yeah. in terms of the playoff implications. And we're going to get into some of the playoff naughtiness that is currently looming over week 15. A few teams that desperately need some wins and now need some help. Before we do that, though, Two teams that have absolutely secured their place in the playoffs. The Saints and the Chiefs is our game of the week. This game looks a lot different than it would have two to three weeks ago after what happened to New Orleans last week. Ethan Douglas, who does a great job for the Athletic, broke down all of the playoff picture kind of odds and everything else earlier this week. He has the Saints now with a 25% chance to get the bye in the NFC, which is a massive swing from where we were earlier this month. And I think it's taken the shine off of this game a little bit because this felt like a Super Bowl preview. The Saints were playing so well. Their defense had figured it out. Obviously, we know what the Chiefs are. Now, New Orleans has kind of an uphill battle 
in the NFC. They're probably not going to get the bye. We know how important that is this year. So it doesn't have that same real blooming game of the week marquee feel that it would have if Drew Brees, Drew Brees was playing in this game and the Saints were probably headed toward the number one seed in the NFC. Yeah, and even if the Saints had played just defensively played better last week against the Eagles, I mean, now the shine is off their defense a little bit, although they're going to be pissed off. I mean, I don't know if yeah, I'm going to play Yeah, I also think it's a weird game. game. Like when yes, you're playing against a, a running quarterback game. you couldn't pr- plan for, when there's no tape of the guy you're about to play against, and stylistically he's so different than the quarterback they've had there. I mean, Carson Wentz has some mobility, but they're not running read option plays every single time they run the ball like they were with Jalen Hurts. So I still feel fine about the Saints defense. It's actually the part of this game I'm most interested in is what they look like against the Chiefs. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just think there are a lot of really interesting matchups things here, specifically related to the Saints defense and the way that they match up with the Chiefs offense. They're one of the few teams, I think, that are actually built to play really well against the Chiefs, just in terms of the talent they have in the secondary. They have a true shutdown corner in Marshawn Lattimore. We'll see. Do you think he'll shadow, he'll follow Tyreek Hill? That's a question I have, because with defenses playing the Chiefs, you don't really know what they're going to do because sometimes teams step outside of who they've been all season. You know, Buffalo dared the Chiefs to run the ball all game. There are teams that blitz a lot that don't necessarily do that against the Chiefs. Let's talk about it on Wednesday's podcast with Matt Bowen, and they play a lot of two-man, and it's a lot of aggressive man coverage. Can you do that against Mahomes yeah. because of how much he scrambles? So teams have to fight left-handed against the Chiefs a lot, and I think what game plan you bring to the Chiefs says a lot about how you see their offense and what you think they do well. So I think a lot of things are on the table. This is the type of game, it feels like the Saints defensive front has to absolutely dominate, push the pocket, keep Mahomes in the pocket for them to have a chance. And again, that's easier said than done because that's what everyone has to do. I just think the Saints team has the talent to give the Chiefs offensive line problems in a way as a lot of other teams don't. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I'm going to be watching some of these very specific matchups, whether it's what's Cam Jordan doing? How is Cam Jordan able to rush against a Chiefs offensive line that still doesn't have Mitchell Schwartz, probably isn't going to have Mitchell Schwartz until the postseason at this point? He he hasn't even returned to start practicing yet. So those are some of those upfront matchups. And then, like I mentioned with Marshawn Lattimore, Patrick Mahomes was asked about it this morning, how they think that the Saints defense might play them. And that's it's just such an interesting question because do you want to take Tyreek Hill away? Can you take Tyreek Hill away? Or do you try to take away Travis Kelsey, who is having one of the best tight end seasons that we've ever seen by a player at that position? So I, I just think that stylistically, there's going to be some really, really interesting matchups. But I just think big picture, this game has... There's just so much to discuss, and it's mostly related to the Saints and where they are in the NFC, what their future looks like for this season, for this postseason, and then beyond this year. And I don't blame Saints fans right now for feeling a little nervous, especially after what happened last week against the Eagles, because it almost is this like deja vu, but uh, but an even worse sense right now, because yeah, you can mention it, that they don't have a clear path to get the number one seed. Now they're going to have to rely on or count on Aaron Rodgers and the Packers faltering over the last couple of weeks of the season. And the way that Rodgers has been playing lately, that doesn't seem that likely to happen. So now you have to wonder, okay, is Drew Brees going to play? He's been uh, activated off of IR, cleared to return to practice. So there is a chance that he could play this week, but I don't anticipate that Sean Payton will give us any sort of clues 
this week at all as to if Drew Brees will be able to play. Other than that, he will be at least eligible to play. So what do you what do you think, Robert, when you when you look at the Saints about where they are and what sort of ceiling now they have for this season? They just desperately need him back because the way they play is so based on precision. And that's partly because Drew Brees doesn't have the arm he used to have. So they have to play a little bit more of a condensed version of the game. But it's also because of the skill position talent they have on that team. They don't have a lot of explosive down-the-field playmakers. Whether it's Manuel Sanders or Michael Thomas or Jared Cook or even Alpin Kamara, they have to play in a small area. And without the position that Drew Brees gives them, they've really struggled. I looked up some of the numbers today. It's horrifying what Taysom Hill has done in the short area of the field. On passes of 0 to 10 air yards this season, he ranks 39th in total EPA added. One spot below Jameis Winston. Wow. This isn't EPA per play. It's added total. Jameis Winston has thrown seven of those passes. Taysom Hill has thrown 10 or 60. On this list, Taysom Hill is also below Chad Henney, who has thrown five of those passes, and Geno Smith, who has thrown four. And if you watch them play, that's not surprising. He has very little touch in that area. He's missing throws. He's throwing the ball off of Alvin Kamara's face mask. He doesn't have much touch around the green. Taysom Hill's short game is not a strength of what he does, and that's what this offense is. So at this point, I just think they have to be looking at their watch, saying, when are we going to get Drew Brees back? And can we possibly steal back the number one seed in time to salvage this season? Because like you alluded to, if they can't salvage this season, we are looking at a dark, dark road for the Saints. I just wonder, I had questions about why they were going to play Taysom Hill over Jameis Winston when they needed a backup quarterback. And so much of it felt like it was ego from Sean Payton. And I know you you guys have talked about this you know, over the last month or so, and And it was fine when it worked and it worked against the Falcons. It worked against the Broncos when the Broncos didn't have a quarterback and Taysom Hill was by far the best quarterback on the field that day, which was stunning. But I was at that game and when they did ask Taysom Hill to pass, it was bad. It was really, really, really ugly. And now I just wonder if this is going to cost them. And if, I mean, right now it already has cost them and they've fallen out of that number one seed. And if Drew Brees is still not cleared to return, this week. And if it is Taysom Hill, I just wonder what that sort of game plan is going to look like against a Chiefs defense that does give up a ton of yards, but they also can make some really big plays. They're very opportunistic and they have some really smart defensive players who could probably take advantage of a limited passing game. So I've, I just have a lot of questions about the the, the decision-making there and their long-term future at quarterback because it just really feels like th- this was their year to maximize the end of the Drew Brees era. This was I their year. I think they tell you that. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely believe that. And given the injuries now that Drew Brees has gone through for two years in a row, including you know, this year, these were some very serious very uncomfortable injuries that there's no guarantee that even though he's returning to practice this week, that when he gets back, he's going to be super effective. I mean, that if he gets hit, I, what's going to happen? He just needs to be a distributor, though. Yes. That's the thing. He just needs to be a distributor in the way that Taysom Hill can't be. And one of my biggest questions now is how healthy is Alvin Kamara? Because he's been on the injury report a lot recently. I asked Kat about this this morning. 
I was just like, is there a reason? Have they kind of articulated why they've gone to more Latavius Murray when Tavis when Taysom Hill's been in the game and Kamara just hasn't gotten the same workload? And she said no because I don't think they ever talked to Sean Payton anyway. And he, so it, I don't understand why Kamara hasn't been as much of a part of the game plan. And in the passing game, he's just disappeared for the reasons we mentioned before. Yeah. Taysom Hill just isn't able to tap into that element of this Saints passing game and it's necessary so even if you can get Breeze back it still feels like he'll be able to be a point guard for this offense in a way that Taysom Hill just can't be I think the gimmick is up and they just need to try to get back to even a limited version of what they were before as soon as possible yeah I think so too and you know they need to run the hell out of the ball you need to take possessions away from Patrick Mahomes and that's really hard when you don't have a functional passing game, right? And if Alvin Kamara is not as big a part of the offense as he needs to be. So I I just, I think this could be a really interesting game. And I think it should be really exciting. I really like some of these defensive matchups that the Saints present to the Chiefs. But man, I just, I just don't know the direction that the Saints are going in right now. And I think I'd this be nervous. Could be a 35-17 sort of game. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised at all if they just blew the doors off them. I don't know if the Chief, if the Saints can possibly keep up. And I think the Saints defense will have to keep them in this game. But we've seen that doesn't really work against the Chiefs this year. Even good defenses have had a ton of trouble against them. And I want to watch what the Chiefs defense does against the Saints offense. Because the Chiefs are super aggressive. And that's what they do stylistically. They can play that way because they know their offense can carry them. They blitz a lot. They play a lot of man coverage. I wonder what they'll do against Hill because he's actually been pretty good when teams have blitzed him this year. He's averaging 8.3 yards per attempt, and he's getting blitzed on about a third of his dropbacks. I wonder if the Chiefs are just going to sit back and say, we're just going to make you play quarterback. We're going to play some funky coverages. We're going to drop guys you know, into zone. Is Tyre- is, uh, excuse me, is Tyron Matthew going to be able to get one in this game? Things like that. I wouldn't be surprised if he had a tough time And if he has a tough time, I think the Chiefs are going to be able to score enough where this one can get out of hand. And if it does, and the Saints are now out of the running to get the bye, and they're looking at another hard road through the playoffs, it's a tough reality for them. They are $100 million over a $106 million cap, $176 million cap right now. And that's skewed because Breeze is making $36 million. I'm sure they'll have some cuts, but they have to tear down a lot of this roster if this falls short and now it just seems like the mountain is going to be so hard to climb compared to what we might have thought a month ago and that's a really really tough thing to face if you're a Saints fan it's just one more year where one of these breaks two of these breaks has not gone your way and you're going to be sitting here thinking what might have happened in the final years of this of the Breeze Peyton era when you had arguably the best roster in the NFL. And you and I have been there for some of these, the end. We we talked a couple of weeks ago how we were both at the Minneapolis Miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at the NFC Championship game against the Rams. I was also there last year when they lost to the Vikings in the wild card round. So apparently I am not going to be credentialed by the Saints for any more playoff yeah, games. Yeah, Jesus, I can't believe they keep letting you go. <laughs> well, to be fair, the Minnesota, one game was in Minnesota and right. the, the NFL handles the uh, NFC championship game credentials. But, you know, I've I've been there for the end of those games and there was always the sense of devastation, but this feeling of, well, Drew Brees will be back. Even last year when he was heading into free agency, it didn't, it was the same day that Brady lost and that the end of that day. And there was a million questions about 
you know, yeah, is this Boston, the end for that. Brady? Yeah, it's like, is this the end for Brady? And that you weren't having those same questions in New Orleans because there was just kind of this feeling that while they he wasn't under contract, you figured that they would figure out some sort of way. And there was always the sense of like, okay, well, we have this core, we, you know, with Michael Thomas and um, Alvin Kamara and all these pieces that there'll be chance, there'll be a chance to make another run. And I just right now, I don't know. I mean, I'm looking at their salary cap table right now for next year. And yes, you can wipe off a wipe off a chunk if Drew Brees is no longer on the team, but Cam Jordan has $18.9 million hit. Michael Thomas, 18.8. Teron Armstead, 16.2. Taysom Hill has a $16.1 million salary it's cap remarkable. here next year. I mean, and these are important pieces and players and guys that you've already paid. So it's not like there's just little easy nicks and tucks here and there. There's going to have to be some very difficult roster decisions. And the Saints have lived on the edge, over the edge, in the terms of way that they have managed their rosters and their salary cap. Rightly, doing, if you can. If you right. have the ability and flexibility to do that, they've found an inefficiency that other teams don't if your owner is willing to spend to the cap. They, they are the keep, team that is most screwed by the financial implications and the financial realities that have come with the pandemic. If yeah, things I mean, had they, just kept going like they would, they would have been okay. Yeah, and they, you know, they kept kicking it down the road a little bit. And it was okay because the cap kept growing. And a lot of it had to do with the gymnastics that they've done have been with Drew Brees' contract specifically. But it's not just that contract. It's a lot of these deals that they've handed oh, it's out. The, and, and they've done so many things where it's, all right, we're going to bring Janoris Jenkins' base down to 980 grand and push all of this. It's wizardry. It's very yeah. impressive what they've been able to do. And if the cap was going to grow steadily the way that it had, and like a lot of t when teams were spending in free agency this year, the thought was that the TV money would be coming soon. We're yeah. good. We can spend as much as we want because it's only going to grow more. And now the fact that it's taken a 180 from that, teams plan, you know this, teams plan financially three years in advance on the cap, at least. They have those three-year models that they do, and it's like, all right, we have this for this, and when this happens, and to have it take such a sharp left turn has really impacted not only the Saints' future, but their present, because it colors the way we think about this team in this moment, because we know what's potentially coming. All right, let's get to our matchups of the week. Two that I am very interested in, because two units that we just haven't talked a lot about on this show. We talked a little bit about the Washington defense on Sunday's podcast, but again, I think they deserve a little bit more credit. And they're playing against Seattle this weekend. This is a top 10 defense playing against a top 10 offense. And this Washington defense has just stuck around. And they have continued to play well. They had another great game last week. The Washington defensive line has become a unit that you just have to watch every week. They are demanding your attention, and they're doing it all the way across the board. This is a group that obviously there's a lot of draft pedigree there with how many first-round picks they have, but they're playing that way. And I went back and I watched that game again earlier this week, and it's really, really just they, – they grab you. As a group, they absolutely just grab you and grab your attention. Yeah, when I was um, on Monday morning, when I was starting some rewatches, they were the first or the second game that I went back and watched. Yeah. And I never thought that I would say that, but a lot of it was because I just can't take my eyes off of Chase Young. I wrote this Sunday night. I tweeted about this too. I just, he's clearly going to be the defensive rookie of the year. I mean, I, I don't even think there's any other candidates really that are in that discussion legitimately right now. 
But the way that he's been playing. It's all playing, quiet guys like Antoine Winfield or Julian Blackman. Or, there are a lot of yeah, guys that have been decent, but no one has, again, grabbed the spotlight like Chase Yeah, has. and this is this like a lot of these when we talk about the MVP award, it's a you vote for one guy kind of award. Yes. It's not like you get a one, two, three, and then you add it all up. So if you get to pick one guy, it's clearly Chase Young. But he's it's kind of similar to what Nick Bosa did last year in that he very quickly is moving into the conversation as of the best defensive players in the NFL. I would not put him in like the Aaron Donald, Miles Garrett kind of conversation yet, but he is moving his way in there just in terms of he is making such an impact as a rookie that, you know, it's really, really, really impressive. And he's doing it game after game after game. And it's not just that he's filling up a stat sheet. He's making impactful plays every week that has gotten the Washington football team into the first place in the NFC East. And it starting to feel like they're not even just like the best of the worst division. Like they're a team that I don't, I don't think they're a good team. Right. I mean, I, they're still not a, they're not in that category with the best teams in the NFL, even the best teams in the mid tier, probably teams in the NFC. But with that, the way that defense has played recently, they're going to be a really tough out in the playoffs in that first round. And all these teams that are like, cool, we'll just get the five seeds so that, you know, it'd be better to be a wild card so that we can play the NFC East. You might end up regretting that in January if this defense is able to go on one of their ridiculous runs. You just you don't want to play that front. And yeah. they've done a great job. I think that the back end has been underrated and they've played well and they've gotten more out of those guys than you would have expected coming into the season. But the front is what carries them. And the Chase Young thing is interesting because he's very flashy, but play in and play out, he hasn't been a dominant pass rusher. I think he has like 24 pressures on the season, but he has all these splash plays. This group almost reminds me of a funhouse mirror version of the Steelers front. You have guys that are truly nuts and bolts technician players that you can rely on. Like Jonathan Allen is a very similar player to Cam Hayward. He's gotten a lot better as a pass rusher. He has strength. He's got some really nice hand stuff that he's developed this season. Uh, Brandon Thorne is one of my buddies who loves watching him, and we've talked a lot about that. And I almost, when I look at Chase Young, he reminds me of like a juiced up Bud Dupree. Where when you have these guys that can be your pillars on the defensive line and be assignment sound and all of that, you can have these chaos creators that kind of rotate and live around them. And that's what Chase Young has been for them. And Montez Sweat is kind of in the middle. So it's just, it, there aren't perfect comps, but when you combine them all together, that's what the group reminds me of. And I think that if you can have that group carry you and have them control games like we've seen over the last few weeks, that's when they become dangerous. And you're looking at a Seattle offensive line this week that's without their starting right tackle against this group of pass rushers. I mean, Chad Wheeler is going to have one hell of a day against this group. And I just think it is going to be a tougher out for Seattle than we possibly could have imagined six weeks ago. Yeah, especially when we saw them struggle against the Giants two weeks ago. I mean, we have yeah. some very recent examples of their offense you know, laying an egg and just not playing that great. I do think that they're and going to... And that's a perfect to... example because the Giants pushed them around. They pushed the pocket. They made really... It felt like Russell, everything was closing in on him. And I think that's exactly what you could see on Sunday. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's the model, right? That that's what Jack Del Rio has to be looking at this week more so than what the Jets did last year. <laughs> The Jets and the I almost first week I was going to go back Williams? and watch that game today no, because we no. did, we had we had Michael Sean on to talk about the Seahawks last week 
And we had a lot of questions about their offense and everything else. So when I was going back to rewatch some stuff today, I was like, maybe I should just watch the Seahawks offense against the Jets and see if there's anything of note. And I was like, why would I no. possibly do that? What could I learn? My time is better spent elsewhere. Yeah, we didn't we didn't learn anything other than that they didn't play down all the way down to the level of competition, which the Seahawks will do sometimes. I mean, they are inconsistent and the variance that they have makes them a really scary team not in a scary in a good way but in that that way that you just don't know if you can trust them week in week out and probably makes it really really stressful to be a Seahawks fan but I just think this this is a really interesting matchup and it has some really sneaky playoff implications because right now both of these teams are in the playoff field the Seahawks can clinch a spot if they win this weekend um, so they're still right in that NFC West race as well Washington is leading that division improbably. And now they have to hold off the Eagles who, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Eagles, but all of a sudden the Eagles are way more interesting and are, could potentially be a factor in that division, especially because they have the benefit of that tie from earlier this season that could help them out in the standing. So this game that actually the matters. of the NFC East by saying, yeah, when the Eagles tied the bill or when they the tied Bengals. the Bengals, they really helped themselves out down the road here. It's I mean, it, it might happen, but you know, it's, it, it's like a sneaky, meaningful game. And it wasn't one that if you're just kind of scanning through the list of games that might jump out at you, but it might end up being one of the most interesting and weird and fun and also important games of the weekend. Washington is a team that looks like it could finish eight and eight this year, which you never could have told me that before the season. I never would have believed it. It just felt like they were so in full scale rebuild mode. And now it's just, it's worth thinking about their future in a way that I wouldn't have before the year, or even a month ago, because you have this group of defensive players and their offensive line has actually played pretty well. They will see what happens with Brandon Scherf. He's going to be a free agent. They have some decisions to make there. You know, McLaurin is obviously a really nice player. They've gotten a ton out of Antonio Gibson. I'm really excited about what he's going to look like down the road. He's just been better as a runner than I ever expected him to be. So you have these pieces, and now they've played themselves out of the quarterback draft, most likely. So it shifts what their next year is going to look like, but I'm still more excited about that next year than I possibly ever could have thought or imagined. Well, so speaking of quarterbacks, this is going to be a really interesting week because we still don't know if Alex Smith is going to be able to play. He left just before halftime of the game against San Francisco last week with a calf injury that I guess he said it was a minor in, you know, he felt like a twinge during practice last week. And then all of a sudden during the game, it really flared up. And because of where it is, it's the same leg that he had. Um, yeah, then his, working on his, his foot and bending his foot <sighs> back on the sideline. That's just the type of stuff where it makes yeah. me uncomfortable. And like, you could tell that he didn't look particularly panicked about it like yeah. clearly now in, with hindsight we know that it was a cat he knew that it was just his calf that it wasn't also something else, what could but... affect that man mentally anymore uh, he right, is unbreakable exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um but so we don't know who's going to be playing quarterback yet i mean as we sit here on wednesday evening recording this if it's going to be alex smith it could be dwayne haskins who didn't play great when he came in against the Niners last week. And, and obviously just, this year. So this is really kind of a pivotal point in Dwayne Haskins career because I, I don't think he's their future quarterback, right? So where does his career go from here? If he does get to play, does he get to try to salvage it a little bit to try to make a case for himself to be in a competition with whoever else they bring back? And then they'll have to make a decision about 
Alex Smith, if he's going to be on the roster, he's technically under contract through 2022, but they do have an out after this year where they could, they could move on from him with only a $10.8 million um, hit for next year. But do you want him back? Is he going to be your guy? Or do you need to really just start building with somebody else and draft your own guy? I mean, this is a new regime and they didn't take a quarterback last year and now they potentially have the chance to. Ron Rivera has done a really nice job. I mean, I think that we have to give him a lot of credit for yeah. what this team has looked like. They play hard on defense. And the hiring him, the entire thought process was trying to build respectability and trying to bring in somebody that could get the ship righted or get the train back on the tracks or whatever transportation metaphor you want to use. And he has done exactly that. All right. Let's get to a team that is trying to push that Washington football team in the NFC East. The Eagles offense against the Cardinals defense has suddenly become a really interesting matchup in a way that it was not when Carson Wentz was in there. Do you think this Eagles offensive situation is real? Do you think that Jalen Hurts can give them enough, or do you think he's given them enough of a jolt of life, it looks different enough, for this Eagles team to possibly steal a couple games down the stretch here? Yeah, I mean, they possibly could. I mean, they, they're they passing the eye test, right? They They clearly have a different level of juice going on right now, and they have an element that actually makes defenses scared for the first time. I mean, I bet defensive coordinators were loving game planning for Carson Wentz over the previous month of the season because you knew that he wasn't, you knew that he was going to make all these unforced errors and that it was going to be really easy to pressure him and that he was going to do some really dumb stuff and make some bad throws. And, you know, Jalen Hurts at least gives defensive coordinator something to be scared of with his rushing ability my question is how sustainable is it and when you play defenses that are well coached that are expecting him to run and that are going to be more disciplined with the way that they um try to keep him in the pocket you know if there's if they're they're gonna assign somebody to spy on him i mean there's there's a there's a lot of examples of ways that well-coached defenses Bill Belichick defenses, for example, have shut down quarterbacks who are apt to run that otherwise have a limited passing game. I'm very curious if Vance Joseph is going to have that sort of game plan if they have the horses to do that uh, this week. But at least right now, they're interesting. And they, for the first time in a really long time, look a little bit dangerous on offense. If Carson Wentz was playing in this game, I would be afraid for Carson Wentz and the Eagles offense because the Cardinals defense, I hadn't watched a ton of them, if I'm being completely honest. It's just a unit that not a lot of stars, and they played well this year. They're ninth in DVOA. I think they're 15th in EPA per play. It's a defense that's better than people expected, but I hadn't really dug into it. I went back and watched the game against they played against the Patriots because I wanted to see what they did against a running quarterback and the game they played against the Giants last week. It's a fun group. I mean, Vance Joseph is playing like a guy that is playing with borrowed or house money here. I mean, he is, it is aggressive. They blitz a lot. They play a lot of aggressive man coverage. There are plenty of guys in the front seven that are making stuff happen. And I think against that old version of the Eagles offense, it would have been a problem. Now, can you play that way against Jalen Hurts? Because we saw a team in the Saints last week that likes to play a lot of, again, aggressive man coverage, first, third, and four, they're playing man coverage, Jalen Hurts doesn't like what he sees, takes off, first down. And that happened a lot last week. So what do the Cardinals do to combat that? I don't know the answer, but as a group, they just have a lot more, I don't know, oomph than I thought they were going to. You, Hassan Reddick had a massive game last week. Isaiah Simmons 
is coming on in a way that I didn't really expect considering how he played earlier in the season. They have these guys that, and this is how they've drafted to a certain extent, when you think it's Tyron Matthew or Buda Baker, Hassan Redick, uh, Deion Buchanan, Isaiah Simmons, these positionless players that don't necessarily fit into these boxes. And sometimes those guys either fail because they don't do that or they have some versatility. And Hassan Redick now playing as more of an edge player and getting those reps. He had some amazing change of direction rushes against that against the Giants. I was like, wow, this is this guy has something. And Simmons is has a better feel and coverage than he had earlier in the season. So I have just I can't wait to really see what this defense looks like, not only for the last four games of this season, but how they try to build it moving forward. Because I think with Baker and Simmons and Chandler Jones coming back, they've got some pieces at all three levels to kind of build with here. And I think that Vance Joseph has done a pretty good job. Yeah, and so when you talk about all these guys who are positionless, you have to have a plan for them. And early in this year, I wasn't sure if they had a plan for Simmons. And it didn't look like they had a plan for Simmons through the first half of the season. And that was pretty frustrating because if you're going to draft a guy like that as high as they drafted him, I think you need to have a play on, on literally day one, like Thursday night of the draft. You need to have some idea of exactly how you're going to use this guy. But um, it took a little while for them to to kind of figure out what his role is. But, you know, Hassan Reddick was like that for years where they were really trying to kind of force him into this outside, stand up outside linebacker, more of like a hybrid role. And it took until what? This is year four, I believe, for him, right? Yeah. And they to, declined his fifth year option. So he now has five sacks in the game on the verge of hitting free agency. Yeah. And so I think he's at 10 sacks right now. I mean, he was like, I mean, he was a bust, right? I mean, it was probably fair or unfair to call him that, but accurate for how he had performed for the first couple of years of his contract. And, and he's really shined the Buddha Baker. He's been just kind of a revelation this year. And, you know, it's, he doesn't necessarily get mentioned in that discussion of the best safeties in the NFL. I think part of a lot of that is because he's one played in a secondary with Patrick Peterson and Patrick Peterson. There, there's not room in that market for probably too many stars. I mean, there's just not that much spotlight on Arizona, but he maybe was overshadowed a little bit. And since he didn't have the interception statistics that you need to get kind of national recognition as a defensive back, maybe we weren't paying enough attention to him. But I think he's been the game in and game out their most important defensive player and has been really fun to watch. And um, yeah, I like you said, I don't know exactly what what Vance Joseph's game plan is here, what exactly his answer is going to be. But this is also it's going to be a fun game. And it's going to be like a sneaky, important game for the playoffs, just like the Washington Seattle game is because right now Arizona is in Philly is chasing Washington. So this this is a game that's ultimately going to matter. Arizona is in the two teams, three teams behind them are the Bears, the Vikings, and the Niners. The fact that the Bears could have life if they somehow manage to beat the Vikings this week and the Cardinals lose is not something I'm emotionally prepared for. I just I wanted to write off this Bears season and now there's a chance I can't do that. And I yeah, really this is a, this is a that. really dangerous time for the Bears because Mitch it's Trubisky puts together a couple like decent games. And you're in like a world of shit for next year. (laughs) Trust me, I'm aware of that. I was having the discussion with Kevin Fishbane today and I was not having a good time. So looking at the Eagles side of this very briefly. Oh, also one more thing on the Cardinals. Marcus Golden has done a really good job for them. I wanted to mention that. He's a Mizzou guy. I've always liked watching Marcus Golden and he fits what they do because when they have kind of those nebulous, hard to define looks up front and they're bringing a lot of pressure, he's a really good guy to drop in the mix there. He has 40 pressures on the year. He's been 
one of the 10 most productive players as an edge rusher in terms of getting pressure on a person at basis in the NFL this season. So I wanted to mention that he's a fun player. And I think that he fits what they do is a smart trade to go get him back on the roster for Steve Kime on the Eagles side of this. I kind of came away from that game against the saints. I was like, Oh man, their running game really has a lot of life. And you know, Jalen hurts really gave them something. And if you look at it, that's true and not true. Miles Sanders, if you take out that 80-yard run that he had, only averaged about two yards a carry. Jalen Hurts did a lot of work as a scrambler, but there wasn't a lot of consistency on that in the passing game and with what they were getting from him as a runner. So even though it's a little bit better than what they had with Wentz because it's more interesting, I still feel like they could run into a wall and this could be more of a slog than people expect. The Cardinals did a great job against the Patriots when they played against them. Damian Harris finished averaging 3.4 yards a carry, and 18 yards of his 47 came on one run. Cam finished with 46 yards on nine carries. 14 of them came on that scramble that essentially won them the game because Isaiah Simmons hit him late. So if you go back and watch that game, there wasn't a lot of openings for the Patriots running game, and they've been really good running the ball this season. So if the Eagles can't run the ball in some of those read option sets where Hurts is a threat, I don't know what they're going to do against a team, again, that can play man coverage and really push you around. So everyone's very excited about Jalen Hurts right now. I don't think it's a given that the Eagles offense plays well against the Cardinals defense on Sunday because this isn't like it was against the Saints where they could sneak up on them. They could jump on a team that wasn't ready. They put this on tape now, and the Cardinals have shown they can control a team like this with limited weapons and with a quarterback-based running game. So just something to keep an eye on. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, let's get to who has the most at stake in the NFL this week. Lindsay, who you got? So I want to get into this Raiders defensive situation. A oh, bit. man. I know, you've, okay. I know you've talked about this a little bit, but I'm not sure if it needs to be the entire Raiders defense or if it needs to be more specifically to Rod Marinelli and John Gruden. But this was a massive move to fire defensive coordinator Paul Gunther, a guy who John Gruden brought in with him. You know, he was the guy that he handpicked to be his DC when he came back to coach in the NFL after all those years in broadcasting. And now you've made this move on a short week. They're playing Thursday night against the Chargers with their season really on the brink. I mean, they they still have playoff hopes. They're really on life support. They really needed the Browns to win on Monday night, the Ravens to lose to kind of keep their keep their playoff hopes alive. That didn't happen. So now they not only have to win out, they also need help from the teams above them, you know, those teams to lose. So And the Ravens just- schedule is very conducive to them making the playoffs now. Yeah, I mean, once they won, they they beating the Browns was huge for their playoff chances. We don't need to go all Steve Kornacki right now on all the playoff probabilities and all of that sort of stuff. But I am wearing khakis, so we're good to go. <laughs> well, so I just think this is a really, the timing of this is really interesting. It makes me wonder if Rod Marinelli was the guy that John Gruden just wanted all along, but he couldn't get him because of contract situations with Dallas. And he made some, you know, interesting moves to kind of, as soon as Rod Marinelli was available last year, he just 
fired his defensive coordinator and brought in Rod Marinelli because he could last year. Defensive line coach. Yeah, their defensive line coach. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. so yeah, they, he fired his defensive line coach basically to find a spot to bring Rod Marinelli. You know, these guys have a really, really long history together, dating back to all of their years together in Tampa. So I'm just really curious what sort of difference we'll be able to see in this Raiders defense on such a short week. Schematically, if they're going to be different, if it's just going to be they're going to be better on their assignments, if they're going to be more disciplined. Rod Marinelli is he's just so respected in the NFL for he's being a, a legend. teacher. Yeah, well yeah, and he's but just like the players who have played for him just love the hell out of him because he's just such a good teacher and a really good communicator. And he even though he's I believe 71 years old still manages to really connect with his players. I've read this gra- I just have to I pulled out this graph from a USA Today story by our friend Jory Epstein last year that was just ridiculous and also just really encapsulated who Rod, Mar- Rod Marinelli is. And he said, Marinelli often uses animal animations of animals to send his message. Sometimes Marinelli madness features a cheetah chasing a gazelle to illustrate the speed of pass rush demands. He shows a bull turning a corner as an example of how his defensive linemen should drop their shoulder and turn their heads inside. It, like, he just does... Kind of some weird. Wacky have you never heard stuff. about that before? No, I know I have, but it's just. Oh, uh, it's like, Chicago. It was when all of his years there. I actually was going to do a story about him a couple years ago when the Dallas defense was playing pretty well, and I went back and I talked to like Erlocker and Charles Tillman and a lot of those guys. And he's an intense dude. I love Rod Marinelli. I have a soft spot in my heart for Rod Marinelli because of what the 2012 Bears defense looked like. I actually loved those early 2000s Tampa Bay teams. Yeah. He is. I think the best defensive line coach probably in the history of the sport, you could argue. But if they do play decent over the next few games, and yes. you have a 71-year-old <laughs> Rod Marinelli, if you're a Raiders fan, do you want 71-year-old Rod Marinelli to be your defensive coordinator with this offense after what happened in Dallas where it looked okay, but it was very simple, and when Chris Richard came in, it actually looked better than when Rod Marinelli was running the defense, and he was the defensive coordinator, but he wasn't calling the plays, so he wasn't really the defensive coordinator. I just think if you look at what's happened with somebody like Brandon Staley, who is a 38-year-old defensive coordinator and was a position coach that was plucked out of a system that gives people problems— why don't we do that with defense the same way we yeah. do it with offense? I just don't understand that. It seems like a smart way to try to find a diamond in the rough like that. And I just don't know why going to rot. If let's like Wade Phillips should have a job in the NFL if he wants one. I think he could absolutely give stability to somebody. The Raiders aren't after stability. They aren't at, they're not trying to build something there. They already are ready made to compete. I think they absolutely should take a swing on somebody who could give them a jolt on defense rather than somebody who's going to steady the ship and make them the 23rd best defense in the NFL. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're, you know, if, if you're talking about 71-year-old Rod Marinelli, Raiders Twitter is all in on Wade Phillips, who is uh, 73, will be 74 next year. And you know I love Wade. I mean, he's if you're not following him on Twitter, if you don't know him, he's one of the greatest people in the NFL. But I think you're right. I talked to Wade a weird amount. I, I, I've talked to him several times recently. He definitely wants to coach, and he misses it. And I think that I, I brought this up to him. I said, a team like the Jets, if they brought in a young offensive yep. coach, and, and he didn't seem to mind that idea. And I think that that's the type of thing that would be smart for him, the model that the Rams followed, where yeah. we have a young head coach, let's bring somebody in who, all right, Wade, Defense is yours. 
It's a sim- that he runs a fairly simple defense compared to others, but it works because for the most part, he's a good teacher. He, he can, again, bring you stability. I don't know if that's what the Raiders should be after. I think they should be after something a little bit more exciting, a little bit newer. And I think that Brandon Staley's success is probably going to send teams in the wrong direction. I just don't know why. Defense is even worse with retreads than offenses. There's very little creativity and inventiveness when it comes to defensive hires, and I just don't understand why. So, yeah, I guess just, you know, when I look at this week specifically, I just want to know now who are the Raiders going to be? Is that Are they going to implode? From here, you know, they're playing the Chargers, which those games are always super weird, especially on a Thursday night. What are they going to look like? You know, their their offense has been so fun to watch most weeks, been so much more than I think any of us were expecting they were going to be this year. And now their defense is going to be their downfall. And I just want to know if this switch to Rod Marinelli is going to give them some life, is going to give them some hope, and if they're going to be able to kind of hang in this playoff picture until the end of the year and, you know, maybe sneak in somehow. I'm guessing that they don't. I think they're, the road now for them is, is pretty tough to get in. But I'm just really curious of what this change at this point in the year is going to going to do for them. I'm going to go with another team hanging out in the AFC playoff race right now, and that is the Miami Dolphins. The Dolphins right now, according to our numbers at The Athletic, have a 38.6% chance of making the postseason. It's kind of surprising considering the story they were early in the season. They were just feel-good thing. Everyone was excited about them. They were a team that was really easy to get behind. Now it looks like they might miss the playoffs even if they win this week against New England, and I don't necessarily think that's a given. The Patriots' defense has been much better recently than it was earlier in the season. They're 10th in EPA per play over the past month. I think that some of the younger guys on that defense starting to figure it out. With no offseason, we talked about this with Matt Bowen on Wednesday, that defense is tough to figure out. With young players, it was going to take a little while. I think that they're settling in. Also, Patriots' offense is a bad matchup for the Miami defense. Miami is 26th in the NFL in EPA per play against the run. This is a defense built to stop the pass. All of those funky coverages, or excuse me, funky blitzes, funky pressure looks, where they're playing man, they're really getting aggressive on the front end of things, that doesn't play as well when you're going against a team that just wants to run the ball constantly and is very good at it. So I can imagine an ugly game between these two teams that the Patriots end up winning. And if they do that, then the Dolphins are going to miss the playoffs most likely. And that shouldn't be surprising considering their expectations coming into the year. But it really did seem four or six weeks ago like the Dolphins were going to be a playoff team. They were going to be the story of the season. And that's kind of come back to earth a little bit. So they desperately need to win this game against New England to keep their hopes alive. If you're Bill Belichick, you're probably really glad that Tua is back and is playing, right? I mean, what he does considering what he's done against rookie quarterbacks, <laughs> rookie considering quarterbacks? what he did it and it's not even just sometimes we get too into those tropes in talking about the NFL. But two weeks ago, <laughs> he terrorized a guy in Justin Herbert who looked amazing <laughs> at points this year. And Tua has not. He's had some flashes. I still think he's has a chance to be good, but he has not been nearly as good as Justin Herbert was from the get-go. And now he has to play against Bill Belichick, who I think would delight in giving Brian Flores some problems. Yeah, so this is gonna this is gonna be a sneaky fun game. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to that and seeing if they can pull it off. It was a, it was actually kind of a weird. I mean, it was a close game in Week One when these two teams played, but both of them seems like a lifetime re- ago though. Remarkably different. Yeah, I mean that was it was like a ten point game back in September. I don't even I don't even remember September really at this point. But September um, never happened. <laughs> All right. 
Lindsay, let's get to our one big question here. I think it's really just playoff scenarios. Yeah. I mean, who's going to win? Who's going to lose? I mean, there are 10,000 different iterations we could go through here if we wanted to play Kornacki, but that's the big story here. Who is going to get in? Who is not? How are the numbers going to shift after this week in a similar way that they did last week? And we, we got a bit more clarity last week. I think the AFC playoff picture came into just, it just became a lot more clear. I think what we had all kind of been expecting to happen with the chiefs moving into that, that number one seed, the Steelers really faltering for another week, but we do have, there's, there's a chance to actually have some more, you know, you get those asterisks and stuff in the standings this week. The bills can clinch the AFC East with a win or a Miami loss. The chiefs can clinch the number one overall seed, which is, bonkers because it is not we're we're still like a week and a half out from Christmas the Chiefs can clinch the number one overall seed with a win plus losses by both Pittsburgh and Buffalo and the Titans can clinch a spot this week with a win and a buff and a Baltimore loss and then when you look to the the NFC here's what's at stake this week the Rams can clinch a spot with a win they're playing the Jets so congratulations to the Los Angeles Rams for making the playoffs. Um, the Seahawks can also clinch a spot if they win against Washington. And the Bucks can get in with a win plus a Vikings and Bears tie. So that one's probably not going to happen, but maybe we've seen weirder shit happen in the NFC North this season. But we're going to know some more of this playoff field after this week. So um, is there any one of those teams that you're especially looking forward to, like just figuring out what they're going to look like heading into the postseason? I think Baltimore. I'm just curious whether they can ride what happened against the Browns. Can that offense find a little bit of life? And some of the things that they're doing with the quarterback run game, they've kind of gone away from some of the zone read stuff, and it's a lot of quarterback counter, quarterback power. I think they're trying to figure this out in real time because it's been sort of a slog for them at times this season. And Lamar still has that playmaking element to him where any single play can be just a bolt of lightning. And if they can tap into that, and they have playmakers on defense. They get really aggressive. I just think they could give teams problems. They could really just be a terrible out for somebody if they get in. And right now, it seems like they're going to. Lindsay, did you have one question that's not yes. related to the playoffs that you wanted to ask before we get out of here? Yeah, so I, I'm going to have my weekly mailbag that's posting on Friday morning. And we solicited questions. And I promised that my favorite one or the weirdest one we, we would answer here instead of in I the love that you bring the weird ones to me. We just, we got to have, we got to get weird, right? So this comes from subscriber Guy H. Hi, Raiders fan here. The Raiders hurt my feelings. They punch me. They kick me downstairs. I guess you guys will know what that means. They give me the tombstone pile driver, but we do have three rings. So my question is, which franchise really has their fan base in the most pain? Cleveland, Detroit, someone else? Please give us a look into the real pain and suffering. This is a great question. It's a great question. It was very well written. Uh, I very much enjoyed it. So, all right, Robert, as... As a long-suffering Bears fan, you're, I know you're not going to take Chicago here, but oh no, let us takes us take us into another fan base that you believe is the most pained. I think it's the Lions because they've had no success, and they're not endearing. Like the Browns, people want the Browns to be successful. I think I think people like Browns fans. It's a good fan base. It's a passionate fan base. They're lovable losers in a way. The Lions aren't that. They're bad and they're boring. And I think that's a really terrible place to be. The other one I would throw out there, 
Oh, so why don't you let you do your? Well, so I was gonna say. Well, I think it's the Lions by a substantial margin, and I don't think it's really even close. I think there's a couple others that we can throw in there. Obviously, the Browns you throw in there, but the Browns had you know a, a kind of a good run of entertaining teams in the 80s for sure i mean mm-hmm. always a lot of unfulfilled potential and then obviously losing your franchise and everything that they've been through quarterback wise in the the years since but it, it ha- i think you could throw the Bengals in there i think you could throw the chargers in there but i it's the lions by a substantial margin the lions have had one playoff win since the merger and you have to go back to the 1950s to have you know multiple playoff wins so they haven't been competitive. They've gotten worse year after year. They have a winless season in the not too distant past. And they're just, it, it's just so frustrating. And I feel so bad for Lions fans year in and year out. And if it's any indication, the questions that I get in my mailbags, in my live chats, it's just a really, really miserable existence. And um, I hope that they can have. I hope that they can experience what the Browns are going through right now, because while I'm sure it was really disappointing for those fans in Cleveland to lose that game on Monday night, this team is clearly on the way up. And I do believe they're still going to make the playoffs. And I think if that happened for the Lions, I think people, they would be a feel good story. And I think people would be interested in it, but it's going to take a lot of major changes to get there probably. Well, obviously they're going to have a new regime, new coaching staff, new GM, but Probably a new, young, exciting quarterback, some flashy defensive players, none of which they've had for a really, really long time. So, yeah, I think it's the Lions, and it's not even close. I think the Chargers have an argument. They lost their team. If you're a San Diego Chargers fan, your team moves to L.A., you get stomped on every single year in the most horrifying of ways. Based on their injury history, it seems like their facility was built on some sort of ground where ritualistic sacrifices used to happen. Something cosmic is going on with that franchise. And I can't, I don't think that should be overlooked, but I do think in terms of all time futility, it is the lions. And I know lions fans and they're a lovable bunch and I feel terrible for them. So I, I think that that's my answer. All right, Lindsay, I think that's all we got. We're going to get to yeah. Mark Chapman here, but that's all we have for a week 15 preview. I really appreciate you stopping by. And I'm thrilled now to be welcoming an athletic colleague of mine, someone who covers the NFL for the BBC and has for the last five years. Mark Chapman, thank you so much for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Should be fun. Should be fun. When they told us that you were available, I was like, yeah, absolutely. I would love to get that perspective (laughs) on the NFL from the UK and everything else. So we're going to get into some of that. But I wanted to start off this conversation by asking you a, a question that I've been mulling over for the past 24 hours or so. You are a Bears fan from England. And yeah, yeah. I am also a Bears fan, as people know, but I didn't have a choice. <laughs> I was born into it because I was from Chicago. My dad was a massive Bears fan. This is something that I come to just based on lineage. You had every option on the table to you <laughs> as someone not from Chicago, and you chose this life that I now <laughs> suffer through every single day. So how did you possibly come to that conclusion when it wasn't required of you? Yeah, it's re- it is really interesting that, isn't it? Because obviously with our football, um, just like just like with you and your football, it's passed on from generation to generation and there is a lineage of supporters. So very much with my, my UK football team, soccer team, um, 
there's no kind of choice there. That that's that's who I support. Uh, it's my local community, and so on and so forth. With with the Bears, um, my dad went on a business trip to Chicago in the late seventies, maybe seventy eight, seventy nine, and he came back with um, a Chicago Bears pennant and a Chicago Bears fridge magnet type thing with a man in a, a bear's helmet um and um um and I never thought anything about them didn't really know what it was I was only five or six at the time and um I uh stuck them on my wall on my cork board on my wall and put the pin <laughs> and put the magnetic thing on whatever was magnetic in my room and didn't think anything of it and then if you go to the early to mid 80s um the television landscape in the UK at that time was there were only three channels. We only had three TV channels, BBC One, BBC Two, and ITV. And then a fourth channel came along called Channel Four. And they started- I love the creativity in the naming of things in (laughs) British television. I've always appreciated that. When I lived in London, the TV in the gym was always set to Channel Four. And I always thought, I love that they just call it Channel Four. It's just so easy for everybody. Well, and then in the 90s, a fifth channel came along. I guess what that was called. Channel Five. Channel Five. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, when when uh, when Channel Four started and they started showing uh, American football, the NFL, and a highlight show on a on a Sunday afternoon, and it was exciting and it was different and it was Americana and everything that that came with it, and it coincided, you know, with going into '85 and the amazing Bears team and the fridge and Walter Payton, and I put two and two together. Um, the Bears were obviously amazing that Super Bowl winning season, and I, I I supported the Bears, and that's and that's how it's been ever since. It was good timing, though. At least you got to pick it up on that wave in the early '80s. <laughs> I can't imagine anyone is purposely choosing to be a Bears fan now. So I'm curious. Well, well, in- but it's interesting. You see, it's interesting because in the also in the the early '80s, I would say everybody. I, I'm 47 now, so I would say everybody around my generation are either Bears fans, 49ers fans, or Dolphins fans uh, because of their relative Reasonably success. Reasonably so. Yeah, yeah, Montana and Marino and so on and so forth. Um, and the first, the second Super Bowl I covered for the BBC, but the first one I did actually out in America was uh, Ravens 49ers in New Orleans. And my son, um, his middle name is uh, is Frank. And at the time, Frank Gore was the 49ers running back. I had the history of the four. I had the history of the Forty Niners in the eighties. Um, I thought watching Colin Kaepernick that they were going to be sensational. The Forty Niners under Kaepernick and so on and so forth. So I bought him a load of Forty Niners memorabilia from that Super Bowl, a Gore shirt, so he could, you know. And there was a link there, and he stayed a a Forty Niners fan. And he said That's he amazing. was saying he was saying to me for many years since. I think that was 2012, wasn't it? Why Why yep. have you made me a 49ers fan? Why have you made me a 49ers <laughs> fan? And then last year, last year, I managed to take him with me to Miami and all was forgiven with just by having that father. I mean, I was working as well, but to have that father and son trip and to see his team in the Super Bowl was was a very special weekend for us, so. What an authentic experience. I, I think that every American 49ers fan was feeling the same way for the yeah. most of the past decade. <laughs> My buddy, who's a huge Niners fan, I'll never, ever forget this. It was last year when they were playing the Bucks. I think it was week one in 2019. Yeah. And it was a rough game. I think Jimmy Garoppolo threw a pick six and it was back and forth. Yeah. 
And I he texted me in the third quarter. He's like, I'm done with Kyle Shanahan. And I reminded him <laughs> 50 times over the course of the rest of that season that he sent me that text message. I've been holding it over his head ever since. So I think that obviously, you know, he came to it with you giving him that stuff. It was mm-hmm. the same kind of a transference of fandom in the same way that you experienced. Yeah. So how does it work for most fans in England, though? Obviously, now the landscape and the television situation is a little different. You can engage with it a little bit more you have more to choose from so i'm sure you get this question a lot where british fans who are getting into the game they'll ask you how do i pick a team how do you normally answer that what is that process like now when more is on the table for everybody i mean i think the one thing i would i would say straight away and and is to dispel a myth that may be there in the states is that just because that an american owner owns a team uh, in the nfl and also owns a team in the premier league doesn't automatically mean that the supporters of the Premier League team are going to uh, uh, also have their allegiance with the NFL team because yeah, because they probably hate the owner. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly <laughs> it. You know, uh, for Manchester United fans are not going to follow the Bucks because there is a lot of um, <laughs> well, hate. I mean, it is as strong as hatred towards the Glazers. Actually, as far as United are concerned, equally, Arsenal fans are not big fans of Stan Kroenke at the moment and the Kroenke family, so they aren't necessarily going to follow the Rams. I think there are there are all sorts of things, really. I mean, look, the the Patriots have be, been huge over the over the years for people over here, understandably, because I think quite often when you're following from afar, you latch on to the to the glory team, don't you? And I think a lot of, of people have done a lot of people have done that over here. But I, what I a often fraught say, historical choice, though. I know, to, to yeah, pick absolutely. a team that's the mascot is someone who defeated yeah. you in a war is like a very complicated <laughs> choice to make. But I, I would argue that maybe a lot of people who got into the sport in the late eighties, early nineties probably went with uh, probably a lot of Broncos fans actually from around that time and Elway and, and so on and so forth. I think um, I, I say to people now, look it depends what you kind of want out of it really if you want to be entertained week in week out then then go and pick a go you know go for go for Aaron Rodgers and Green Bay and if you like the and that's obviously painful to say but and also if you like that community feel and trying to do things the right way then go for the Packers if you're a rebel and you like it a little bit evil and you want to intimidate people then go for the Raiders actually and by the way then I explained to them all about Gruden. So you should have some fun if you're if you're with the Raiders over the over the coming <laughs> you know decade or ha- however long it however long it is. Um, well, that contract is ten years long, so it's probably going to be about a decade. And that's exactly it. Um, some people just some people just stick a pin in it and see where they go. You know, who's your favorite? What you know? Where's your favorite American city? I think they you know they'll automatically gravitate towards the Giants. I think certainly from from presenting. The show over here, both my pundits are former uh, Giants players, one of them hugely successfully in Osio Minura, who won a couple of Super Bowls with the Giants. Uh, Jason Bell, less so, but was a corner at the Giants and also at the at the Cowboys and the Texans as well. So the Giants pick up a lot through through being in New York. Um, what One thing that I don't necessarily think has, has permeated through is, I mean, Jacksonville are over here every year. But I don't think people are, are, are naturally gravitating towards Jacksonville because they're over here every year. I haven't seen that. That was happen. the strategy. And it, you don't think yeah, it's taken it hold in the way that the Jags had hoped? I uh, 
I don't think so. I don't get that impression. There might be more Jacksonville fans than you would normally expect, you know, given the relative status of the team. But, you know, when teams come over here to Wembley, there are probably every team is represented in the crowd in the shirts. And um, we're quite a traditional nation, aren't we? So I think we tend to go for the historical teams rather than um, rather than the newer teams who come over. Seahawks have got a big following over here, actually, as well. Seahawks have. Well, that's interesting because I feel like in a lot of ways, they were the team of the 2010s. Yes. You know, they, yeah. they only won one Super Bowl, but they were consistently relevant. Also, it seems like that's one of the w- moments where branding matters. Like them switching to those newer uniforms and the way that Cam Chancellor looked in those jerseys. Yeah, yeah. Stuff like that matters when you're yeah. coming to the sport as a relative newcomer. That doesn't surprise me at all that people attach and, themselves. And to also, team. you know, they've they've created a good story around their fan base and the extra yep. man and all of that. And I think it's that, very British soccer. It really it, it is. really is. It, re- it yeah. really is. And I, and I think that's it's it's really interesting when you do look at the teams that attract the fans because there are there are definite stories behind why as I've just said explained to you with Dolphins 49ers Bears but Broncos Seattle it all kind of makes sense why why certain teams have big followings over here well, it's also the Pacific Northwest is the place in this country that's embraced local soccer more than anyone else. Right. Yes. I mean, the yeah. Sounders have like an actual fan base in Seattle. The Timbers have an actual fan base in Portland. Yeah. And I think that there is that communal aspect to it. And it is provincial in a way that not every American fan base is. So that's not surprising to me. I, I'm curious, are there just comparisons between Premier League teams and NFL teams that you make for people when they're looking for a team, you're like, all right, if you like this Premier League team, or if you commiserate <laughs> with this Premier League fan base, perhaps you will like this NFL team. What are the easy connection points for you? Well, I would I would say that over the last, given the success of the two teams over over a long period of time, you would always compare Manchester United and the New England Patriots. Obviously, sure. that's an easy comparison to make. Harder to harder to make in some ways because now. The Boston area is associated with Liverpool, really, because of the Liverpool owners and the Red Sox mm-hmm. and the, and the uh, Liverpool connection. But the fact that you know they're ma- not only not only is their success fairly similar, but also the way that I would argue that Sir Alex Ferguson, who managed Manchester United, is very similar to Bill Belichick at, at the Patriots. And it was always an idea, and I would love to do it still, of getting the two of them together and just letting them talk about management and, and coaching. Because they are, well, I think to put it politely, I would call them both old school, really, to be honest. I think you could make you could make a comparison between Chicago and, say, Everton, who are the other team that are, are based on Merseyside in, in the Premier League in Liverpool. Everton had, had a lot of success in the 80s. And have always flattered to deceive since, and and they're at a stage now where they might be coming back, which feels like the Bears of about two years ago. Um, so yeah, always, no longer, would, sadly. No, 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 no. Um, so I think that's a that's an interesting comparison. I think um, you could probably look at Kansas City at the moment and maybe link them to. Uh, uh, Chelsea or a Liverpool in the sense that they might be set to dominate for the next decade, who knows, within their respective sports. I mean, especially with Liverpool and a ton of history, but had yes. a sort of a dip yeah. at one point and now is kind of back on the rise again, which Absolutely. I think you could say the same thing uh, for the Chiefs. 
You could, you could, and actually, Liverpool are by you know by common consensus have the best centre back in the world in in Virgil Van Dijk, who everybody coos over, and virtually I can't find a, a bad word said about him anywhere, really. And you could argue that's exactly the same for for Mahomes, couldn't you? And also, it feels like. Manchester United had 20 years of having a very good-looking star at the forward-facing part of their franchise. And you think it was a 20-year run with Beckham and Ronaldo, and you yeah. had 20 years with Tom Brady, where you just—it's the same guy for the Patriots, Absolutely. but that one guy that you could just stick on a billboard and not even think about it. Yeah. So I'm interested, the just logistically, what type of people and how they consume the sport in the UK? Because I remember yeah. when I lived there. It was at the tail end of the 20, 2007 season. And yeah. we had to find a bar in Harrow that would stay open for us to show the games on Sky. Yeah. And we found this bartender. His name was Andy. I still remember his name. I love him to death. And he would just <laughs> close the blinds for us and just yeah. keep the place open after it was supposed to close. So we could, and I remember watching the Patriots Giants Super Bowl. And I remember the second time, the most recent time I was there was 2010. And the Packers were playing the Bears on Monday night. And I had to convince the person that was running that American kind of bar in Piccadilly Circus, which is, oh, yeah. no, is no longer there, to keep the bar open. And Devin has to return to punt for a touchdown that game. I remember it so vividly. So in terms of watching it, is it just something where people who are really into it have a different sleep schedule? I mean, how do you consume it in a convenient way if you're a big fan of the sport over there? Well, I think I think uh, Game Pass has been a bit made a big difference over here, um, and uh, I mean I mean there are certain rights issues depending on what Sky are showing, how when you can actually watch it on on Game Pass, for example, or on demand. But in but in the main, I think Game Pass has made a massive difference. I think I think mm-hmm. to be honest, on a Sunday evening. Uh, the nine twenty five, nine oh five, nine twenty five games that kick off our time. So what's you know for the four o'clock games on the on the east coast time? The, you know the ones that take place on the west coast, but four o'clock sure. east coast time. So they're they're finishing by about midnight, half so midnight. So that's doable. Yeah, here. I guess so that's that, true. So that's doable. I think that I think the ones where you would really really have to stay up are Sunday night football, Monday night football, and and Thursday night football. But to be honest with Game Pass, I think Game Pass has changed everything and how people consume it. You know, all the games are shown live on Sky, which is a subscription service that that you pay for 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 a sports channel, um, and then the BBC show show the highlights every week as well. And what we always tried to do with the BBC show, which I, I did for five years, was try and um, make it accessible to the new viewer whilst not patronising those that know about the game, which is no it's mean a tough skill. line to walk. So it, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, but it is, it is, and it was doable. And a lot of people consume their NFL every week just by watching the the highlights program. And actually, a lot of them because we tried to make it fun, really. Um, more than anything, a lot of people watched it without really knowing a great deal about NFL and just got drawn in, drawn into it that way. So I think um, there's there's been a rise in uh, podcasts on it over here. Uh, there's greater uh, written coverage of it over here. Um, the radio rights tend to switch between the BBC and a commercial station called Talk Sport. So it's it it's covered quite thoroughly, really, and and you can consume it at your leisure really at a time that's right for you 
How different is the football conversation you could have with the average English fan now compared to what it was like 10 years ago? What is, how, much um, more, how much more depth is it? Um, I think I, I, um, it's quite a difficult one to answer that. I think, I think the only thing that I could say about it is, um, you know, I work, I work for the BBC uh, radio-wise. I do three shows a week for them, including the the, the biggest show of the week on the Saturday afternoon, which covers all the live sport. I present um, rugby league, um, Olympics and Premier League football on television for the BBC, as well as NFL. And I would say that over the last five years of doing the NFL, once the first 18 months are out of the way, more people will come up to talk to me about the NFL show than any other show that I was doing on radio or television. That's and incredible. some people some people would be starting fairly low down with that, but other people would be wanting to have a slightly more in-depth conversation about it. And I and I think that's great. And actually for the Super Bowl for the Super Bowl over the years it's grown and grown and grown to the extent of, you know, you're still talking a good healthy audience share at, at two AM, really, which is probably after half time. In terms of the reasons that football has kind of taken hold in the UK in a way that other American sports haven't. Mm. What would you attribute that to? Is it just about timing? Is it about something innate to the sport? Because I, it doesn't it hasn't happened with basketball or baseball or anything no. else that is quintessentially no. American in that way, the same way it has with football. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are a few things to it. Uh, really, I think. Um, the fact that it was on in the in the eighties and was the first American sport shown over here, still nearly forty years on, makes a difference because it's remembered fondly by people of my generation, and we have children now, and in some ways pass it on to them. I think, mm -hmm. and through the eighties and the nineties, people people enjoyed it and consumed it. I think that still plays a massive part. I think the fact that it has been shown on, and maybe I am biased because I work for them, but the fact that it has been shown on the BBC over the last five or six years makes a big difference because the BBC has a wide reach, you know, not only television but radio and website and the, the, the might of the BBC behind it gives it a great... It doesn't greater, feel as niche. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It gives it a greater profile, really. Um and I also think the I think the NFL deserve huge credit for being the sport that came over here first, really, um, and properly put on a show for everybody at Wembley from from the mid two thousands, um, which the other sports are only trying to do now. I mean, NBA do it, and ML um, baseball did it with at the at the London Stadium, the old Olympic mm -hmm. Stadium. So they're trying to catch up, but the NFL have got a big head start on it. I think the physicality of the game is huge, and I know lots of Americans will think, well, the physicality of the NFL has dropped in recent years because of because of various <laughs> rule changes. However, compared to our football over here, there's still a great deal of physicality in it. And a lot of sports fans like physicality. They don't just want to see people diving and throwing themselves to the ground. And I think, um, and I think a lot of kids like seeing players smash into each other. It's of course it's fun, and you you know. So I think that plays a part. Um, and I think compared to the other two mainstream sports, and I like both basketball and baseball, but um, baseball is is takes a very long time 
I think. It's slow. It's, it's not as nearly as good of a television product. No. And look, we have cricket and we love cricket over here, but we have short forms of cricket and we have longer forms of cricket. So you can consume Also, if cricket it. came along now, would, would people still be attached to cricket in the same way they would if it, the fact that it came along so long? I think the same thing with baseball. No, uh, absolutely. So I think that's a problem. And I also think all of our sports in the main are lower scoring sports. And we've always had a little bit of scepticism <laughs> at, at sports that can finish 112, 110. In the same way that Americans can never understand how we don't have a problem with, uh, well, ties, as you call them, or draws, <laughs> as we call them. That's perfectly normal in sport. So I, I think that all of those reasons together put the NFL, put the NFL a- ahead at the moment. So are there any players that maybe don't have a huge following in the States or aren't the guys we would consider stars that have found a foothold in England just because of the difference in the sensibilities between the two populations? Uh, I, I mean, I, th- I think the, the players that are huge in America are the ones that are huge here. I think what's quite interesting here, and, and we've tried to make a big thing with it over the last few years, is um, because you guys have all your local media – and your players have such a responsibility to the local media and do a lot in the community, they become a lot more recognisable in the States and in their, and in their mm-hmm. community. You've got to remember, if you're only seeing the games and, if, and, and the odd interview afterwards, because all of these guys wear helmets, they're not particularly recognisable to the average fan over here. And one of the things that we tried to make a big thing of was whenever we were discussing players to try and show images of them in the screens without their helmets on to try and make them more recognisable to our audience. But when really you have all your post-match stuff and people in, in standing in front of that podium, it is always really going to be the head coaches or... Um, or your quarterback that are the big names over here because they're the most recognisable. Now, occasionally, an Odell Beckham comes along and because of a certain catch or because of his behaviour or whatever it may be, he'll transcend that. But in the main, you know, you are I, Tyreek Hill could could walk down the street in London. I, I'm fairly sure, and nobody would nobody would bat an eyelid. Patrick Mahomes would walk down the street in London and would get recognized. That's probably not that different than how it is here, honestly. Well, I mean, the helmet yeah. thing definitely it hinders the ability to kind of create stardom within the sport. So something I, I'm so curious about, and before we get out of here, the one team that has never played over there is the Packers. And yeah. I guarantee you that there's a massive Packers following over there because Jeez. they have that communal feel to them. Rogers yeah. has been a star forever. So are there just... Yeah. British Packers fans that are starving to see a Packers game live at Wembley at some point? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there, and I would say not just Packers fans. I would say all fans of the NFL. It is like whenever the London fixtures are announced, it is, oh, we haven't got the Packers again. Oh, where are the Packers? They're not. They're, and they're the only ones. But And I know Aaron Rodgers gets asked about it every now and then. But I, I get it from their point of view. I completely get sure. it. You know, with 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 that fan base and that demand for tickets, why would they take one of their home games and put it over here? And also, if you get if you have a home game against the Packers, you are not going to want to give that up and switch and switch it to London. And I, I'm always and I and actually as a as a sports fan as a as a proper sports fan, 
I completely get that because there's always been talk about the Premier League taking a game abroad, uh, taking games to America or or wherever it may be to to build that market and get more fans. And and I look at that from a fan's point of view. I think God, I would be horrified if 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 we lost a home game to take it to America. That isn't what it's about for me. So I'm always find myself conflicted in what respecting what fans want which is their home games and then and then also seeing the the other teams coming to their to their place but also recognizing the power of taking your sport on the road and how it can grow a fan base also i think that people who are fans of prestigious storied franchises would understand i mean when you you go to lambo it's like seeing a game at Old Trafford or seeing a game at Anfield yeah. or something like that, yeah. where it just yeah. has this. There's I've covered the NFL for, I think this is my sixth year doing it full time, yeah. and when I go to Lambeau, still as a Bears fan, there's something about it. I mean, there is yeah. just something about it when you're there. It's the statue of Lombardi outside, and they have this entryway that that they've built recently, but it still feels classic in this way. It's like this massive glass door at the entryway it almost feels like a cathedral it feels like a religious edifice in this very strange way and i think that if anyone could understand that it would be fans of these football clubs in england that have been around for 150 years so absolutely and that and you know in in this era of amazing new stadia that are all singing all dancing your app can tell you when the toilet is free so you can go to the (laughs) toilet and a hot dog can get delivered to your seat. The 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 sport romantics in us all still want the history and the cathedrals and the less than perfect stadia because of what they have seen and witnessed over centuries. You sit in bleachers when you go to Lambeau Field. Yeah, I mean, there that is ridiculous. Good. And I, so I, it's should, almost yeah. a parody of itself at this point. But you <laughs> you sit in bleachers. I think that's still that way. At least it was the last time I was there. And I just there's always been something so beautiful about that. And again, I think that that's something that everyone can appreciate. Mark, thank you so so much for doing this. I sincerely appreciate the time. Had a really good My time. Pleasure. So hopefully we can do it again someday. Yeah, but I'll come back on when the Bears win the Super Bowl, yeah? Yeah, exactly. As we gush about the Packers for the last 10 minutes of this show, we have made the worst choice possible picking the team that is not only the opposite of a beloved franchise, but one that has been much more successful than ours over the last 25 years, which just so happens to comprise my my entire lifetime. So good stuff all around. There's always next year, Robert. There's always next year. Trust me, I keep telling myself that. Really appreciate the time, man. We'll talk to you later. All right, guys, that's all we got today. Thank you so much to Mark Chapman for stopping by. Thank you to Lindsey Jones. We'll be back on Sunday night, the recap podcast with me and Nate Tice. Until then, please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. You'd be doing me a favor. Also, please subscribe to The Athletic. Our buy one, gift one promotion is still going on. I promise you, you guys will be happy that you got your subscription. There's so much great stuff on the site every single day. You're going to be happy that you did it. We'll be back on Sunday. Until then, thank you so much. Enjoy your weekend. Talk to you later. This was The Athletic Football Show.